The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, if you haven't already, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with uh, me to the book of Colossians. In the New Testament, we are in the book of Colossians. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1 today. Finishing up chapter 1. And uh, we've been spending uh, these weeks coming up now, uh, uh, eight weeks, I think, in the book of Colossians. And really enjoying this, 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 what is a shorter book in the New Testament, but hopefully full of a lot of meaning. So, as you're turning to Colossians chapter 1, it's on 983. If you need a Bible there, grab the Purack one, but Colossians 1. Uh, let me ask you a question then related to uh, powerful forces at work in the world. If you were to identify powerful forces at work in the world, I venture to guess that you could uh, name several. Some of them... Uh, deeply wicked and unrighteous, some of them wonderful and pure and true and good. But if, if you had to identify the most powerful force in all of world history, uh, you might say, well, democracy. Democracy is the most powerful force overtaking world history. Or capitalism, maybe socialism in the other direction. Or civil rights, or maybe in a modern era you're concerned and you would say secularism is the most powerful force at work in the world today where we see an overwhelming force of emphasis on secularism. But what I want to say to you this morning is exactly what I believe the Apostle Paul is saying to the Colossian Christians there in the first century, that the most powerful force in the world ever and still today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most powerful force, the most powerful idea, the most powerful truth in all the world is the gospel of Christ. And the reason why Paul is writing this letter is Paul is writing this letter to this small church in a small town to explain that very reality. To invite them into an understanding of the gospel that is wonderfully expansive and also wonderfully personal. He is both writing to explain and confirm the power of the gospel. And what we've seen him do so far in chapter 1 is he has thanked God and prayed for this particular church because the gospel that the Colossian Christians believed is the same gospel that Christians in Rome are believing and Christians in Ephesus and Christians in Corinth and Galatia and Thessalonica, all these different places. They're believing the same gospel. And Paul has said the gospel that you believe is the same gospel that's being believed around the world. And he is encouraging those Colossian Christians to identify themselves within not just the scope of their local congregation and their local community, but to see how their faith in Christ has joined them to a community of faith that transcends geography to unite us together as a people of God in Jesus Christ. He wants the Christians to understand the significance of the gospel, how their faithful trusting in Christ produces fruit in their life in their local lives and how that fruit spills over into their community and their community spills over into the region and the region spills over into the world and the gospel advances. Paul is talking about the advance of the gospel in Colossians. And he has been emphasizing both that individual impact and global impact. So with that context originally in mind, you and I receive Paul's letter to the Colossians and I want us to receive it the exact same way. As Paul reflects on the advance of the gospel and the significance of that for our life. But let's be honest about something. It doesn't always feel like it in, 
in this century that the gospel is the most powerful force in the world, does it? If we're being honest, it doesn't always feel like the Christian faith is roaring forward with great advancement and in great triumph. It doesn't feel like that all the time. As a Christian, I think oftentimes we think that uh, the gospel is not the most powerful, most significant force in world history or in modern times. As a Christian, in fact, you might often be tempted at times to believe the opposite, that the gospel is way down the line of a force of influence as you sit around and wonder and look at the world and ask yourself, does anybody care about Jesus anymore? Does anybody care about Christianity? As you face discouragements and the fact that social consciousness of basic Christian truths are, are, are largely absent and where basic Christian ethics used to be assumed not only now are they discarded, but they're targeted as hateful. People are disposed to believe untrue things about you. If you identify yourself with Jesus, few are persuaded by your sincere faith. It's tempting to think that not only the gospel uh, is not significant, but it doesn't have any significance anymore. As people say, don't you know, we live in a, what's being called a post-Christian world. Well, that's interesting, isn't it, for us to ask a question, if we live in a so-called post-Christian world, what we read in the book of Colossians is a letter written to a church in a pre-Christian world, facing the same forces of opposition, facing the same struggles, the same isolations, the same misunderstandings. And so Paul's word to the Colossian church is wonderfully relevant to us in the 21st century, those Christians living in what could be called a pre-Christian world. Now, Paul knows all of that. Paul knows the opposition. Paul knows the struggle. Paul knows the temptation to feel like, boy, we're really small amongst everybody else out there who doesn't seem to care what we really care about. And how do we face that? How should we think about the way the gospel is advancing when it feels like God is only doing small things rather than great things? So, how should we speak about the advance of the gospel? How should we think about the ministry of the gospel? That's the, that's the point of today's text. So with that in mind, I really want us to come to the text with that strong context. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures and, and hear him speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we turn to you now as your people. People that you have called your own, called out of darkness, called into your wonderful light, into the glorious kingdom of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we hear the Scriptures read and proclaimed, help us, Lord, to receive it by faith as the Word of the King, and the Word of You who reign on high. And because Your Holy Spirit so used a human author, the Apostle Paul, to record these words for us, let that same Holy Spirit rest upon our human hearts and minds and wills to move us, to shape us, to transform us, to be more earnestly convicted about the Gospel, more sincerely committed to Jesus Christ. So come now, Lord, and help me as I proclaim and help us all as we receive your divine truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Colossians 1, verse 24 to the end of the chapter, under the heading, Paul's ministry to the church. This is the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a steward according, a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you 
to make the Word of God fully known. The ministry, mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open in Colossians 1. And as you've got it there, uh, look back very quickly at verse 23 as well. And notice how Paul speaks about himself. Paul is writing to this church This church he doesn't personally know, but he knows by way of a a, a fellow minister. He identifies himself back in verse 23. He says, He wants them to continue steadfast in the faith, stable steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is a minister of the gospel. We're thinking this morning about the ministry of the gospel. And I want to acknowledge to you on the front end that's a bit of an awkward thing to do when you're the minister of the gospel talking about the ministry of the gospel. But it's helpful in context to remember that Paul is talking about his gospel ministry as a model for gospel ministry. So I'm not here speaking about myself. I'm speaking about Paul's gospel ministry as a model of what gospel ministry looks like. Paul wants the Colossian Christians, Paul wants you to understand the ministry of the gospel. To understand how the gospel advances, how God has chosen through His providence in history to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is through a ministry of the gospel. I'm going to say that several times. The ministry of the gospel. Now, he introduces himself here as a gospel minister. And then our text for this morning is his ministry to the church, the church broadly. But we should think about this notion before we dive into the details of the very notion of a gospel minister. Paul understands that he isn't the only one of these. He is one of the apostles. The apostles are themselves gospel ministers. You can notice that Paul isn't just talking about himself because even in the text, he's using both singular language, what I do, and also plural language, what we do. So, for example, in verse 28, he writes, Him we proclaim. And the we is the ministers of the gospel. So he's not just talking about himself. He's not saying, look at me, look at Paul, look at everything I do and pay attention to me. He's saying, no, this is how God has chosen to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ through a ministry of the gospel by gospel ministers. The apostles. Or perhaps specific to Colossae, particular individuals like Tychicus who would have carried this letter to the congregation and read it to them. Or men like Epaphras, who would have been the first pastor of the congregation at Colossae, who heard the gospel from Paul and then took the gospel to Colossae and proclaimed it there. Or people like Philemon, who hosted the ministry of the gospel in his home. He is saying the gospel advances by way of gospel ministers who serve you in Jesus Christ and advance the gospel by their ministry. Now we know that. And we know that because there have been now centuries of gospel ministers, right? There are those 
who are of incredible note in church history, ones who you might be able to recognize their names and their incredible contributions to Christ's kingdom throughout history. Just wonderfully uh, uh, people who have done wonderful things for Christ's kingdom. And then there are also those who labor in relative obscurity, whom the history books will never write about, but who ministered in local congregations, making a difference in the lives of the people of God as servants of the gospel. So you should think about it this way. If you have heard the gospel, you have been a recipient of the ministry of the gospel by a gospel minister. That's how this works. That's how God has chosen to advance His kingdom, a ministry of the gospel by ordained servants. And so Paul is writing about that very thing. And you might be tempted to say, what relevance does this have for me if I'm not a gospel minister? Just hang in there, right? Because we're talking about the Christian faith. And if you identify yourself as a Christian, you're talking about how you fit into this picture. But Paul is particularly writing here about how God has chosen to advance the gospel so that the Colossian Christians will be strengthened so that when they are tempted to think that they are only a small people of small things and a small Savior, they would be encouraged to realize that God is doing wonderful things in the world. So, Paul is here going to speak about gospel ministry under three We could call them headings or three subjects. Uh, What is so important for you as a Christian believer to understand about the gospel ministry is three things. First of all, in verse 24, is that there is suffering in gospel ministry. Suffering in gospel ministry. And then secondly, in verses 25 to 27, there is a stewardship of gospel ministry. Suffering and then stewardship. And then in verses 28 to 29, another S word, there is the strength of gospel ministry. Suffering, stewardship, and strength of gospel ministry, as the Apostle Paul says, this is how the gospel advances. So first of all, in verse 24, the suffering of gospel ministry. Again, verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, I remember my ordination service. Uh, I remember it very well, and by God's grace, I've been able to participate in several other people's ordination services in the last 10 years or so. And in an ordination service, it's a special service, there are always two charges. There's a sermon, and then there's a charge to the pastor, and a charge to the congregation. And I've been privileged to give charges to the pastors in several different occasions. But the next time I have the opportunity to do it, I'm going to take Colossians 1.24 as my text with a charge to the pastor. Because here in this text, Paul explains what is often true about the way the kingdom of Jesus works. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where oftentimes the way down is the way up. To humble yourself is to be exalted. To turn the other cheek and not to seek vengeance. The way of advance of the kingdom, according to Paul, is suffering. And again, on the surface, that seems like not a great way to victoriously advance. But Paul says, this is how the kingdom works. The suffering of gospel ministry. And that seems backward until you remember who our Savior is, of course. A suffering Savior. So Paul is speaking here about the sufferings of gospel ministry. 
It's a dose of reality, really. The ministry of the gospel is a difficult labor. But notice that Paul speaks of the ministry of the gospel in the context of joy. Again, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, if somebody's just going to say that to you out of nowhere, you're going to think this person needs to be locked up. Rejoice, sufferings, doesn't make any sense. Unless their joy makes sense of their sufferings. Think, for example, of a parent who sacrifices for their child. A parent who goes without something or some means in order for their children to have something more or something better. A parent who sacrifices for their child is a parent who who goes without gladly and with joy and with love in their hearts for someone else's sake. And that's the sense in which Paul is speaking about the joy with which he suffers for the sake of the gospel. He says, for your sake, I gladly bear personal sufferings for your sake. There is suffering with joy. It's not a trial or a burden. There is no trial or burden that he wouldn't bear because he loves People. He loves Christians who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He's pouring himself out for them. He wants them to understand. And so if Paul should suffer so that the message would go out to them, fine, Paul says. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I talk to a lot of pastors. And I talk to a lot of pastors who groan a lot under the weight of their ministry. And I find that when pastors who spend all their time groaning, you'll find a pastor who has lost his love for his people. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm not bitterly complaining because life is hard. I rejoice for your sake. Because he loves believers. Now notice this unique statement here in verse 24, and I want to acknowledge to you that this is one of the most difficult verses in the entire book of Colossians, and some people would argue in all of the New Testament. He uses this language. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why? Because I am filling up in verse 24. Look at it again. Look at it. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What do you do with difficult statements in the Bible? What do you do when something on its surface doesn't really seem to make sense? Well, one thing you can definitely do is you can rule out the obvious. When you come to difficult statements in the Bible, you rule out the obvious. Whatever this means here in verse 24, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Whatever that obviously does not mean and could not mean, it cannot possibly mean that there is some kind of inadequacy in what Jesus has done. When he speaks of something lacking in Christ's afflictions, that could not possibly mean that Jesus has done something wrong or that there is something wrong with Jesus' living, suffering, dying, rising, and ascending. There's nothing wrong with what Jesus has done. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant the perfection of his work. When he ascended and sat at the Father's right hand, it was to designate the completion of his task as the only mediator between God and man. So whatever Paul means when he says what is lacking, it can't mean that something is lacking in the ministry of Jesus as Savior. Right? So what does it mean? What is missing from the afflictions of Christ? What is it that's lacking? 
It's not their value. It's not their power. It's not their efficacy. There's nothing wrong with Jesus' ministry. But here's what Paul means in verse 24 when he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Here's what he means. He means the display of the afflictions. The demonstration of the afflictions of Jesus. The communication of the afflictions of Jesus to the world. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the visible presentation of suffering in the life of a gospel minister to point the world to a suffering Savior. And by this, Christ's afflictions will be filled up in the sense that they will have their full effect as people see it. The demonstration of suffering to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, another more personal word about this is that I have a very unique role and, and ministry as the chairman of the ministerial committee of our presbytery. Uh, it's not my intention to speak at unnecessary length about myself, but I'm the one who gets the phone call or the email when things blow up in one of our 30 churches. When a pastor misbehaves, when there's controversy or missteps or disagreement, the moral failing of a pastor, I'm likely one probably of two or three people who would get that phone call of a very angry person on the other side of the line. And in my estimation, most of the conflict comes when pastors decide that what Paul describes about ministry shouldn't have to be true of them. That they shouldn't have to experience difficulty. They shouldn't have to experience suffering. They shouldn't have to experience hardship. They run out of patience, take a heavy hand, try to levy power for themselves, and just about every time it goes really bad. They can't course correct. And then a church ends up without a pastor. And it's sad. And it hurts people. So can I beg of something from you? Will you pray for me? Will you pray for your pastors? Will you pray for gospel ministers? Will you pray for Sunday school teachers and ministry leaders? And will you pray for people who lead in ministry around you that they wouldn't faint under hardships thinking I shouldn't have to and then demand their own rights rather than walking the way of Jesus? Pray for people who minister the gospel to you that the ministry that, of the gospel that they offer to you is a ministry of the gospel that they themselves are sincerely trusting and believing in so that they will point to, again, a suffering Savior rather than turning themselves into obstinate servants of themselves. Suffering of gospel ministry. So there is suffering. And then Paul says there is a stewardship in verses 25 to 27, look at it again. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God more, uh, more word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. You know, sometimes people ask me, what do you do all week? Or joking around, they would say to me from time to time, and uh, some of you are guilty of this. They look at me. It must be nice to only work one day a week, one morning a week, you know? Oh, you're so funny. Uh, Paul tells us what to expect from the stewardship of gospel ministry. 
If again, if you look at verse 25, Paul became a minister of the church, he says, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. A stewardship. Now, a steward in those days was someone who was uh, akin to a slave working in the household. A slave working, a servant of the household who was entrusted for the daily necessities and care for the family to ensure that the provision was made day by day for the welfare of the household. The steward is not the master of the house. The steward is the servant of the master of the house. He takes his orders from the master. He's not free to decide what his own job should be or how it should be undertaken. He takes orders and distributes them and serves. Paul loves to use the servant metaphor for gospel ministry. Especially household metaphors for the church where he says that the church of God is the household of faith with many members, all different parts of the one body gathered together in a family, the household, and ministers are stewards in the house. Such to say that pastors that have private agendas or selfish motives have no place as stewards in God's household. Ministers are called to be faithful, Paul says. Faithful to what? Again, verse 25. This is so relevant to you all, to us all. Verse 25. What are we to be faithful to? To make the Word of God fully known. What should you expect from a gospel minister? Paul says this is what you should expect. That's not to say that there are other skills that aren't helpful or necessary, skills in administration or wisdom or empathy or a manifold skill set of pastoral care or gifting. All those things are important. But Paul says this is the key. This is the stewardship of the Christian faith and the gospel ministry is to make the Word of God fully known. And that language there in verse 25 of fully known is the same root verb from verse 24 to fill up what is lacking. So Paul is talking about filling up and, and making fully known and being displayed here. It's the same concept, allowing the Word of God to have its, have its full scope, its full display, its full demonstration as it is taught and taught and taught and taught and proclaimed and proclaimed and exalted so that people see it and believe it. That's what he's being called to. So the gospel will have its full influence to make the Word of God fully known. Look, anybody can tell a good story or spin a good joke, right? Dazzle you with impressive rhetoric. But those types of things tend to compel you to the person who's speaking, not the subject about which they're speaking. The goal of gospel ministry, Paul says, is to compel you, not to Paul, but to Christ. To make the Word more fully known. Do you find yourself growing in the Word of God here? We set out our ministry to make that the priority. Not most fundamentally to entertain you, but to make the Word of God more fully known. Every, every ministry of our church is designed in some way to focus in, to make the Word of God more fully known, whether through specific teaching or instruction or demonstration of service. It's all going in this direction to make Christ fully known because He needs to be known. He needs to be taught because, Paul says, because the Gospel has been this great mystery 
But this mystery has now been revealed. And so we have to tell people. The, the, the mystery is revealed. You can know. Here's the message. We want you to understand. See this language again. Verse 26. To make the Word of God more fully known, verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them... Or to you, we could also say, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here's the mystery. Here's what you're being taught. Here's what the Word of God needs to be fully known to say. Namely, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of the Christian faith the good news of the Gospel is not just that you have your sins forgiven. Though that's wonderful. The hope of the Christian faith and the hope of the Gospel is not just a clean conscience. Not just the promise of eternal life. The fullness of the mystery of the Gospel is Christ in you, Paul says. A, a language of union. A language of joining. A language of creating a bond between the Christian and Christ. When Jesus' life becomes your life and His death becomes your death and His resurrections become your resurrection, His eternal victory, your eternal hope. Paul says this is what the Christian Gospel is. The, the ministry of Jesus Christ and your relationship with Him by faith into which you come into a union. He says this is what we are proclaiming. We're proclaiming Christ. We're proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That means that Paul, in one sense, only has one sermon. And that sermon is Jesus Christ. Hopefully a pastor has more than one sermon, but all the sermons are about the same thing. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, who was a 20th century Baptist pastor, 19th century Baptist pastor, he said this, take me to any hamlet in London, or in England, and I can find a road to get to London. Take me to any small town anywhere in England, and I can find my way to London. So he says, the preacher should be able to take any text in the Bible and find their way to Christ. Because it's all about Him, Paul says. Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. The mystery hidden for the ages now revealed Christ in you. The forgiveness of your sins in union with Christ. The cleansing of your conscience in union with Christ. The promise of your eternal life in union with Christ. It's all about Him, Paul says. And so, Him we proclaim, in verse 28, adding these two additional descriptions, warning and teaching. Both elements are important. The word that Paul uses for warning here has as its root this sense of pleading with caution to say, not that way, not that way. Assuming that there is on the back end saying, of this way. Warning and teaching. Not this way, this way. So it is the job in the ministry of the Gospel to say what God is pleased with and what He is not pleased with. To warn those whose consciences are not at all concerned and to announce to them the reality of God's holiness such that they come under the conviction of sin and find their need of a Savior. And as they come under that conviction and as they come into the knowledge of that need and find their rest in Jesus Christ, they can be taught to walk with Him all the days of their life. Warning and teaching so as to, he says, present them mature 
in Christ, to present them mature, to see them grow up spiritually in their knowledge, in their obedience, in their discipleship, growing up in Christian maturity, or to use a different way of saying it, back in verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22, he spoke of presenting you holy and blameless. That's the goal. That's the stewardship of the gospel that seeks to have Christian believers grow up into maturity in Christ. So you should be saying, just say more to me about Jesus. Tell me the gospel again. Say more about Christ. Don't talk to me about the New York Times bestseller list. Don't talk to me only about current affairs. Tell me about Jesus and apply his ways to my life. That's what I want. More of Christ. So Paul says there is the suffering of gospel ministry, the stewardship of gospel ministry, and finally, the strength for it. He says in verse 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this reason, verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that is Christ's energy, that He powerfully works within me. Because the same Christ that is mysteriously joined to you by faith is the same Christ that is joined to Paul by faith. Paul says, He works within me. His power is at work within me. It's not my gifting. It's Christ's gifting in me. It's not my words. It's Christ's words in me. It's Christ's power at work through the ministry of the Gospel that advances His kingdom. And and this is the way God has chosen to advance His kingdom. This is the way Christ works. This is the way the Gospel advances. And here's why this matters so much for you as a Christian is it tempers your expectation about what you should expect. Even what you should demand from a ministry of the Gospel that says if this is a true church, a true Bible-believing church, a Gospel-preaching church, this is what we should expect. A ministry that says here is God's Word. We will open it, read it, explain it, apply it and then do it again next Sunday. As we teach the whole counsel of God, not picking my favorite parts or skipping over the hard pieces, but going verse by verse saying, thus saith the Lord for the good of His people. We open the book, we pray, we pour out water and say God has claimed you by covenant grace. And then we break bread and pour out a cup and says God strengthens you in His covenant mercy. And this is the way the Gospel works. And this is what Christians should expect from Gospel ministry. So that, loved one, you would not give in to the manifold temptation and pressure to assume that the Christian faith is waning in the world and we are seeing the sunset of the kingdom of God on earth forsake that thought. The gospel advances in the hearts of those who trust in Christ on the backs of a suffering Savior who believes that God is at work through these ordinary means to accomplish His extraordinary spiritual purposes. Believe it with all your hearts, people of God, and expect it from your gospel ministers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Yours is a kingdom which will never pass away. We thank you that it advances in hope and by faith alone in Christ alone. So, Lord, help us to reaffirm that faith and hope and trust so that our confidence might be strengthened, that we all together might be presented mature in Christ. Lord, bless your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon.
If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.